Thanks. We Bioneers hover at an epic moment of environmental disruption and environmental healing. We've come to this amazing conference in San Rafael to seek truth, truth that will lead to the visions and actions that we need for that healing. I believe that, that truth may be found in trees. Trees actually represent many truths. As a scientist, trees are known as a perennial woody plant having a main trunk and a distinct crown. To a poet, a tree literally means truth, the old English word troth, which means something that is deeply rooted, something that has a strong trunk, something that sweeps the sky. I'm sure that you have your own truth about what trees mean. Many of you probably have a favorite tree, one that you might have climbed as a little kid or planted when your father died or when your daughter was born. And I'd like to invite you to just take a moment to imagine your tree, that tree, and to consider the values that it represents to you. A sense of place, a place to play, fruit, shade. I had a favorite tree that I climbed as a child. I was one of five children in a mixed family. My dad was from India, a scientist, a Hindu. My, brother, my mother was from Brooklyn, New York, a language teacher, and an Orthodox Jew. So um, <laughs> yes, curried bagels were our signature dinner in our family. <laughs> but it was this sort of loving and somewhat chaotic and confusing family. It was in that that I found the strength of trees, that they held me in their limbs, held me aloft safely. This love of trees in my childhood led to a scientific study of forests, specifically the forest canopy. I sought truths, ecological truths, of the interactions of plants and animals that live in the treetops. Until 30 years ago, the forest canopy was called the last biotic frontier, the plants and animals almost unknown. But using mountain climbing techniques, it's been fairly easy to get into the forest canopy of the trees I study in Costa Rica. amazing tree I climbed, not myself. Um, but once, I get in, once I've gotten into the trees, I, sent, I, was, I found myself in a world that was incredibly biodiverse, with plants, mosses, ferns, birds, gliding mammals that are rarely or never seen on the forest floor. My students and I learned that these canopy-dwelling plants and animals are crucial to the workings of the forest as a whole. They are actually keystone animals and plants uh, they provide birds with food and with nesting materials. They intercept water and nutrients from atmospheric sources. But these ecological effects of these canopy-dwelling plants and animals are fast shrinking. 
Global climate change is reducing the amount of mist that arrives. Logging and agriculture are fragmenting or eliminating forest cover. And so scientists like me really need to communicate the truths of these situations to others, not only to other scientists, but to policymakers and to the general public. What I have found is that it's relatively easy to talk about these obstacles and problems to people like yourself, people who already know that trees and forests are important. But a growing proportion of the human population live in urban settings with very little connection to trees and other parts of nature. And so now I face the huge and seemingly immovable obstacle of indifference, of unawareness, of lack of stewardship of trees and other manifestations of nature. And so to overcome these obstacles, I looked at the trees themselves to provide an answer to how I might move or shift these obstacles. Like the trunk of a tree, these problems are gigantic. They're deeply rooted, they're enormous, and they're resistant to change. But if I look upward and outward to the twigs, I realize that actually this tree does move. It is a dynamic entity. And so to document and explore this movement, I turned trees into artists. I tied paintbrushes onto the tips of twigs, held up paper, timed this for two minutes, and found that these trees were moving. They could create art. Being a scientist, of course, I had to find out how much they moved, and so I simply uh, marked out the segments, added them up, multiplied the, the amount of movement or segment length by the number of twigs per branch, the number of branches per tree, the number of minutes per year, and I was able to come up with a number of how far a single Douglas fir tree had moved in a year. I'm sure you all have a number in your mind. I'll give you the answer, which is 186,540 miles. And although we laugh, we have to realize that by shifting our attention from the immovable obstacle of the trunk to the dynamic movement of the trees, of the twigs and the leaves, we can actually realize that that tree moves seven times around the world. And so what I learned is that moving my, my gaze solely from science elsewhere, upward and outward, I might find answers to this obstacle of communicating the importance of science and the environment. What I've done is to, another truth that I learned from trees is that trees, in trees everything is connected. The trunk connects to the branches, to twigs, to twiglets. So if I can connect my ecological values of trees that I just described to you, that I learned from my scientific research to other values that society has, I might have a chance to raise awareness and a sense of stewardship far beyond science and scientists. So I'll go over first aesthetic values, then spiritual and then social justice values. Artists have been inspired by trees and forests for centuries. They gain value from trees because of the beauty and the form and, and what trees do to light. I have looked outward and outward and onward from uh, science to forge communications between forest conservation and artists. I created what I call canopy confluences, where I bring together several forest ecologists with artists, with musicians, with poets and creative writers to join me in the canopy to better understand the collective perceptions and communications that we have. We camp in remote forest locations for a week. I teach participants how to climb trees. I set up little platforms into the canopy and I allow my guests to make art and music and poetry. Of the amazing work that has been produced, I'll show you two. One is a sculpture by Bruce Chow, it's called Ether. He's a sculptor at the Rhode Island School of Design. He expressed what he learned from the scientists on that trip. 
The forest is dynamic. It falls, it breaks, it regrows. Two months after this installation, it gradually began to fall apart, and Bruce allowed it to fall apart. The other picture is by an Inuit, Brian Arulalak, who had never seen a tree before we flew him down from Nunavut in the Northern Territories to join us in the confluence. We asked him to depict trees with fresh eyes, and he made that image of a tree with a stone cairn in front of it. When we asked him about that, he said that in his native tundra, stone cairns are used to guide the way, to, the, to be their pathways, to be their path makers. And so after a week, he said, he realized that trees are our path makers, our pathfinders. And when I realized that he had only seen and been with trees for a week, I think that is actually one of the most strong uh, conservation statements that I've ever heard someone speak. In addition to visual artists, we brought um, musicians, and one of them was a hip-hop singer, a student of mine named Duke Brady, and he made a wonderful canopy rap song. Are you? Look up, expand your perspective. Don't clear cut and don't be so selective. Just another minute and I will leave you alone. Try walking a mile in a different biome. Now that gave me an idea to overcome an obstacle that I had worried about for decades, and that is how do we reach urban youth who may never see trees, may never encounter them in any positive way. So I hired a professional rap singer named Caution, and I also engaged some other biologists to take 40 at-risk students, middle school students from Tacoma, the inner city, to come to our campus. Uh, Caution and the students and the biologists explored the forest, explored our, our, water, uh, our water beach. Um, they went into these studios in the afternoon and made their own rap songs. And after a week of this work together, they went home with a CD that had nature expressed using hip-hop music, spoken word poetry, and rap music, using their own culture. Um, thank you. One thing I learned, though, was that rap music, for some reason, seems to appeal mostly to the, the young men. And so I felt that it was important to have some sort of feature for young women. Um, and so we generated Treetop Barbie. Um, she's been a huge hit. And the key here, in terms of scientific engagement, is the small booklet that you see about canopy plants and animals of the Pacific Northwest. This goes along with Treetop Barbie to the young girls and um, aunties who buy them for her. Uh, we approached Mattel about this to commercialize it. For some reason, they weren't interested. I couldn't understand that. Um, so we now go ahead and just go to Goodwills, and we buy used Treetop Barbies. We clothe them in the, the uh, treetop clothing uh, that volunteer seamstresses make, and we send these out. We're now working on... We're working on ground support, Ken, but for some reason, he's not quite as popular, so that needs a little work. I want to mention briefly one other project that involves aesthetics um, that I have not yet been able to launch, and I mention it because I think maybe out there in Bioneer land there might be some people who, who can help me, um, and that is about associating nature with fashion. Now, as an academic, as you can see, you know, from my own goodwill dress here, um, I'm completely out of the fashion world. But I recognize that fashion has a huge, huge aesthetic and social um, draw to many people who might not ordinarily think about nature. And so what, I would, what I'm hoping to do is to start a line of canopy camouflage clothing 
um, basically to take the image of a canopy plant. There you see in the corner is Piper Aretum. It grows in the cloud forest canopy of Monteverde where I work, which is sort of an endangered habitat. Um, make this clothing, turn it into a jacket. And the key here in terms of science engagement is a little hang tag that has information about the fact that this uh, plant is endangered, that it's related to uh, black pepper, the pepper that you put on your scrambled eggs in the morning, so that when I go into Starbucks and somebody sees my jacket and says, hey, Nalini, nice jacket, I can simply say, well, this is Piper Aretum. It grows in the Monteverde cloud forest. It's endangered. And it's related to the black pepper that you put on your family. And that way, every person wearing fashion that we associate with consumerism can in fact be turned into a tool to raise awareness, to overcome that obstacle that I talked about. Well, we can laugh about the ecological Ralph Lauren that we might create, but we also want to remind us that another branch of human values of trees, that trees are tied to are spiritual values. Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet, said that trees are Earth's endless efforts to speak to the listening sky. And indeed, over 80% of the humans on Earth identify themselves as being religious or spiritual in some way, which is a much larger proportion than those who identify with ecological issues. So linking religion and spirituality with trees and with conservation, I think, can be a great way to go. However, simply ramming down facts and figures about global climate change and biodiversity loss is not a very good tactic. And so I decided to take a different tactic, to move slightly outward and upward in terms of how I wanted to communicate about science. I decided to read the scriptures, the holy scriptures of the world's religions, to see how trees are portrayed in them. I began with the Old Testament and found on the very first page that there are two very important trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when I actually went and downloaded the Old Testament from the internet and did a search for the words tree and forest, I found that there were 328 references to those two words. Being a scientist, I categorized those verses, <laughs> and I saw that uh, they relate to really everything, every human endeavor that that culture uh, is regards. So I did the same thing with the Talmud, the Quran, the Gita, and Buddhist stories, and I put together a sermon that I then offered to a number of churches and temples. As it, as it turned out, uh, the Unitarians were the first ones who let me into their pulpit. And, um, but that was followed by Baptists, by Catholics, by Presbyterians, Buddhists, Jews, and so forth. Um, I've also been um, reminding the congregants that there are a number of trees, almost always, that, that grow upon the grounds of the church itself. So my students and I are now creating small booklets in which we map and document the trees on the church grounds to remind them that it is not only the interior of the tree that is sacred, not only the, Christ of, the cross of Christ, not only that six-sided star, but it's the trees, the worms, the beetles, and everything else that lives on that churchyard and around that churchyard that we should hold in sacred regard. So the obstacle between religion and science, I think, can be overcome when we open our mind, when we look upward and onward beyond just science or just religion. Um, but I think we also have to remind ourselves that not everybody in our society can go to a church. Not everyone can go to a park. Not everyone can visit a museum. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the 2.3 million men and women who are incarcerated um, in, in, our, in our country. In 2005, um, I'd forged the Sustainable 
Prisons Project. This is a collaborative project between the Evergreen State College, where I taught, and the Washington Department of Corrections. The idea was that those who have committed crimes in society, uh, it doesn't mean that they can't relate to nature or benefit from the idea of science and the environment. And so I began a series of seminars, scientific seminars, in which we brought um, scientists and sustainability practitioners uh, behind bars. This led, as we began giving these seminars about everything from gardening to brown bear ecology to moss and ferns, to a number of, oops, a number of, um, a number of projects that involved gardening, that involved um, worm composting, beekeeping, um, and uh, water purification. We also carried out, by collaborating with conservation groups, some conservation projects. And because probably not that many of you have been in prison before, I thought I'd show you a, a short video about some of these conservation projects. Well, Seal Hickman was mobbing down the hallway one day, and he was talking about, yeah, I'm in, I'm in charge of the frogs. I'm in charge of the frogs. I go, frogs? Because, yeah, they're going to be growing frogs here. I said, I'm your guy. That, to me, is the best part. It's about being you know, a part of something bigger. Science is about that. I mean, it's about adding to a knowledge body that's bigger than any one person, any one lifetime, any one society. And so this is kind of a little microcosm of that. It's science in a different environment. Within the Puget Sound region for prairie restoration, there's, there's more and more work to do with fewer resources. One of the things that Stafford Creek's gonna really be able to help us out on is grow a lot of the plugs uh, for the prairie species that we're gonna be using to restore these uh, areas. We're doing uh, eight or 10 species. Um, we're doing a total of 200,000 plants. Uh, they're gonna grab a lot of the plugs for us to put in a permanent seed bed on Fort Lewis. And we're gonna be able to collect that seed to use in our restoration projects. See, like, this is a little too much, but you just use a very little. So like salt, you like putting salt on your food or something, you know? I want to see how they come up. Habitat restoration is, is critical, and it's going to be done by somebody somewhere. So why not utilize a facility where it's a very controlled environment and we have the resources to provide that kind of a, a research project or a science project, and it's a perfect match. By being able to look at moss or raise frogs or help grow prairie plants, they suddenly become connected by this thin but very real ribbon to the outside world, both intellectually and physically. And to me, that's been very significant for people holding the ribbon on, on both sides, the prisoners who are locked in and the scientists who are, who are entering into that world. And that's a connection that I think um, is really, I think, what the project is all about. Thanks. About 
five years into this project, we realized that we were not getting to all of the prisoners, that many prisons are held in solitary confinement uh, because of their violent behavior or their mental health. And so what we're trying now is to bring nature to those inmates that we can't bring live plants and live frogs to. We're bringing nature imagery to them in the way of uh, still photography to put up in their exercise yards for the hour a day that they get to spend there. And we have just started work for the first six months in a prison in Oregon, the Snake River Correctional in in uh, Institute. And we have found very positive responses just to the fact that there's nature imagery on the walls instead of blank walls. Um, the violent infractions have reduced, been reduced by half within six months. So I think that's really a very positive thing. I think it shows us the power of nature, actually, in terms of being able to have that sort of a, um, a sort of that sort of a response. So um, this may seem very far from tree climbing. Talk to inmates and doing rap songs and you know prisons and churches and that sort of thing. Very different, very far away from the climbing of trees and and exploring uh, new species of biota. But I actually think that this is really the very same activity. These activities are all the same. These are truths. These are truths that we must remember. That vision can turn into action, even by those that we least predict. And sometimes I'm actually kind of amazed that these projects work. And I ask myself, is this because we're overcoming the obstacles because of the truth of trees? Is it because I'm a female, a woman? Is it because I'm a tree biologist? Is it because, is it like a Hindu Jewish thing that might be going on here? <laughs> I actually don't think any of those are the case. I think that we can all do this kind of work in a small way or a big way. There are many ways to inspire healing of the earth all relating to the tree truth that everything is interconnected, that trunks join to branches, join to twigs, and join to twiglets. To remove obstacles, we can think about our own values, our own ways of relating to the world, and link those values of ecology and the environment to whatever it is that we encounter. I have used trees, and that has been a rich arena for me to reach out. But many other values are out there waiting to be linked like a young tree with branches and roots reaching out. The truth of trees is all around us. We can remember what they teach us because they are always here. Not just here in a forest or here in the parking lot, but we ourselves are trees. You and I have a trunk. We have limbs. We have a crown. And more than that, we have trees within us. The bronchia of our lungs are trees. The neurons in our brains are trees. And most of all, we hold trees in our hearts. When we connect with the trees and other parts of nature, we connect with the deepest and most important parts of ourselves. Recall your own tree, that one you thought about, and the truths that it has shown you. Each time we see a tree, outside us or within us, we can remember that they reflect the truth, the troth, something deeply rooted, something with a strong trunk, something that sweeps the sky. Thank you.